This morning, we are in Mark chapter 15, verses 42 through 47. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there. It's about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you're using one of the blue Bibles provided, that's going to be on page 853. You'll see a big 1-5, big 15 there, and then you'll see little numbers Go under that 15 and then go to the little number that reads 42, and that's where we'll be starting. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. This is the holy, inerrant, and inspired word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, We come before you grateful that we get to look at your word. We're grateful that you provided it for us. We're grateful that we get to gather and be reminded of who you are. We pray that through these verses, you would do just that. You would show us more clearly who you are, what you have done for us in Christ. We pray also that you would help us to see clearly what it looks like to respond to the cross as Joseph of Arimathea does here. God, we pray for Grace Fellowship Church right down the road who is proclaiming this gospel as well. We're grateful for their faithful ministry and we pray that you would continue to bless them. God, we pray that there would be more churches raised up. We pray for churches that are dying, that you would infuse in them new life, life that is rooted on your word. We pray for the churches here in Westerville that they would be a testimony of what it looks like for churches to stand rooted on your holy, inspired, and inerrant word. God, we thank you for our Savior, Jesus. We pray that the gospel be made clear this morning. And God, we ask for guidance as we march through this. Be with us, Holy Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, many of you have been to funerals. I told you just a couple weeks ago that I had attended one. And it you ever noticed how interesting it is that when people go to funerals or when they have a brush with death, they tend to get really introspective. People start to think more deeply about, wow, how am I living my life? Maybe I need to make some changes. And sometimes those changes last for a, a brief season, sometimes a little bit longer. Sometimes they last someone an entire lifetime. And so this morning, as we're looking at this text with Joseph of Arimathea, He is confronted with death, and it makes a massive impact in his life. And when we see this man 
confronted with death, namely the, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, we need to see some of the ways that he was changed. And as an overall sweeping statement, we see that the cross led Joseph of Arimathea, and therefore the cross leads followers of Jesus, leads God's people to courageous and sacrificial living. The cross leads God's people to courageous and sacrificial living. And so as we have looked at the book of Mark, we've been going through it, we've seen five major sections. So it starts off, the, the Gospel of Mark starts off in the first 13 verses, just kind of introducing the good news. It's the beginning of the good news. And then from there for the next eight chapters, we see the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand and he begins to show evidences of what it looks like for the kingdom of God to be made manifest here on earth. We see small glimpses of it in the way that he heals, in the way that he casts out demons, in the way that he eradicates the effects of sin. And then from chapter 8, about midway through to chapter, the end of chapter 10, we see the good news of discipleship, that Jesus is calling people to follow him. And this is a good thing. This is a wonderful thing because we're following the one who has overcome death, as we'll see here in this passage and in the following passage next week. But Jesus is calling people to follow him. And this is good news. And now, since the beginning of chapter 11, up until this week, this section, this fourth section I'm getting ready to talk about, is the ends with this passage. And it's the good news of Jesus' death. Jesus, we've looked at for the last four chapters or so, the effects that our sin have had, has had on Jesus. And now we get to see the effects that Jesus' work has on us. So we've seen that our sin and the things that we have done have led to Jesus' betrayal, led to Jesus' arrest, Jesus' scourging, his mocking, his crucifixion. And in this passage, we see his death. He is definitely dead, as we will go over. But now, as we just saw the effects of our work on Christ, we get to see the effects of his work on us. And we see that in Joseph of Arimathea. So as we look at this, my hope is that we'll see clearly that the effects that it had on Joseph of Arimathea, and therefore should be some of the effects that it has on all of God's people, are these three things which you can find in your bulletin. That we would live with courage to sacrifice respect, courage to sacrifice riches, and courage to sacrifice time. You can even put in parentheses after time and energy. So courage to sacrifice respect, courage to sacrifice riches, and courage to sacrifice time. And so starting with that first one, Courage to sacrifice respect. We see as this passage starts, verse 42, and when evening had come. So this, it's still Friday. It's still the day that Jesus was crucified when he was hung on the cross. And as we know, he was he's crucified on the sixth hour, which we said was noon, because they started counting the hours when the sun came up. So the sixth hour would be around 12 o'clock if the sun came up around 6 o'clock in the morning. So the sixth hour, he's crucified. And by the ninth hour... He's dead. We're told he has died. Now, it's interesting to note that Josephus 
a historian in the early church time period was writing about the ninth hour. He said it was the ninth hour when the sacrifices for the temple would take place each evening. And so right when all the sacrifices for temple worship were taking place, Jesus, our great and final sacrifice, was dying on the cross. And so we see here that Jesus has died. It's past the ninth hour. It's now evening. And the day is nearly done. The passage starts off by saying it was the day of preparation. Now, what, what's the day of preparation? The day of preparation was the day before the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was, was the day of rest. And the day of preparation was preparing for that day of rest. Because if we're truly going to rest, then we've got to make sure that there's nothing that needs to be attended to on the Sabbath. So therefore, if Jesus is going to be attended to, it has to happen now. Similar to those of you, as we head into summer, some of you have vacations planned. That day before vacation tends to be the craziest day because you're trying to get everything situated, everything arranged, so that when you come back or while you're gone, nothing crazy is going on. When you come back, you're not coming back to craziness. Setting your email, you're out of office, you're mowing the lawn, doing dishes, doing whatever you can to make sure that when you come back, it's not stressful. Or if you, some of you, if you're in our situation, when you have babysitters come over so that you can just have an evening away, you leave almost a textbook worth of detailed instruction what to do if such and such happens, when to feed, when to put down, when to do all the things. It's preparing so that you can rest. And we see here we are at, we are on the day of preparation. Now a question and a good question is why wouldn't they just be able to leave Jesus on the cross today, Friday, as the text is, and on the Sabbath and just take care of his body following? Why not just take care of it afterward? Why why are they in a rush to take care of it right now? Well, I'm going to have you grab, grab your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy 21. Let's see, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in your Bible. If you're using one of the blue Bibles, it's on page 164. But Deuteronomy chapter 21, starting in verse 22, we read, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, and here's the key, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. And here's the reason why. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so Jewish law said that if anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed by God. And we've talked about how Jesus took on God's curse for us. He's hung on a tree. He's crucified on a tree. So Jewish law demands that he not hang there for the rest, for more days. He needs to be taken down that day and buried that night. Now, the tough thing is that this is a day of preparation. The very next day is the Sabbath. So there's only a small window where they can get Jesus down and bury him so that this curse of God upon a man who's hung on a tree does not defile their land. So, 
We need somebody to step up. And we see Joseph of Arimathea step up for us. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, starting in verse 43, we get to learn a little bit about him, about who he is. He's a respected man. We see he's a respected member of the council. The council is a Sanhedrin, which he said was 70 religious leaders plus the high priest. And so this is a very exclusive club. They say that the Senate is the most exclusive club in the world because only 100 people get to be inside the U.S. Senate. This club was 71, so slightly more exclusive. And Joseph of Arimathea is in it, but he's not just in it. He's a respected member of it. Joseph of Arimathea is a respected man. He's also a religious man. In verse 43, we see that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. It says he was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. So Joseph of Arimathea had faith in Christ. He believed that when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, he believed him. And he was looking for that kingdom. He was seeking God's kingdom in a very similar way that John Mark's readers would have been seeking God's kingdom, waiting for it, saying, where is this? Because remember, John Mark is writing to believers in Rome who are beginning to face some persecution. And so as he writes to them, he says, Joseph Arimathea was also looking for the kingdom of God, just like you are. Now, Joseph Arimathea being on that council, it's important to note that Luke 23 tells us that he did not approve of Jesus' crucifixion. So he was on the council, and the council deemed it necessary that Jesus be crucified. And Luke tells us that Joseph of Arimathea did not, in fact, approve that verdict. He was not on board with it. So Joseph is a respected man. He is a religious man. He's also a rich man. He's very wealthy. And then he is also, as Matthew 27 tells us, he's a disciple. He's a follower of Jesus. But there's an important caveat that we need to know. And John provides that for us. In John 19, says that he is a secret disciple. So up until this point, Joseph of Arimathea, who's all these things, he's respected, he's religious, he's wealthy, he's also a disciple. And up until Jesus' death, he is a secret disciple. Why is he a secret disciple? John 19 tells us in verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He was afraid of the Jews. Remember, he was on the Jewish He was in the Jewish Sanhedrin. And so if he were to go against what they say and proclaim publicly that he is a follower of Jesus, it would be costly for him. He would lose access to the Sanhedrin. He would lose respect from those who are on the Sanhedrin. And so Joseph, not only being on the council, but being a respected member of it, knew that if he were to make a public statement, if he were to publicly side with Christ, it would essentially, for his religious purposes, be career suicide. He's in the Sanhedrin, which is very exclusive, and so he's getting ready to, if he were to step out and proclaim that he is a follower of Christ, it would be career suicide for him. However, verse 43, he took courage, and he went to Pilate, and he asked 
for the body of Jesus. Joseph went public with his faith despite the fallout that may take place. He went public with it. And so here's the thing with Joseph. He's all these things prior to Jesus' death. And when Jesus' death happens, something changes. Something changes with Joseph. The work, Jesus' work on the cross led Joseph to courageously identify with Jesus, even if that costs him the respect of those around him. Honoring Christ was more valuable to Joseph than any respect he could receive from his fellow men. Honoring Christ was more valuable to him. And, and look, just to clarify, having respect from others is a good thing. We want to be well thought of. However, we can't make the respect of others, we can't make the opinions of others supreme, the supreme thing. Honoring Christ and valuing him, faithfully following him, needs to be supreme. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, something that this passage just confronts us with, just pushes right up to our noses, is the question of, are we living to honor God or are we living for the respect of others? Are we living to honor God or are we living for the respect of others? And that comes into play when we think about how we lead our families. It comes into play when we think about how we interact at our workplace, how we spend our money, how we use our time, how we think about political issues like gender or preserving life. The way that we live our lives matters. And Joseph is recognizing that in light of the cross, that he can no longer secretly follow Jesus. He needs to pursue him wholeheartedly despite any loss of respect that he may receive. Galatians 1.10 says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The call on the Christian is to serve God above man. Now, here's the good news, is that if you are in Christ, Christians in the room, if you are in Christ, we've been freed from the yoke of living to please others. That's one of the good news, one of the things that comes with the good news of the gospel, that in Christ you are accepted regardless of what others think of you. You are accepted not on the basis of what others think of you, but you are accepted on the basis of Christ's finished work. And so the words, the thoughts, the opinions of others, they have no bearing on the way that God views you. The words, thoughts, and opinions of others have no bearing on God's heart towards you. If you are in Christ, then he loves you despite what others may say about you as you strive to live faithfully for him. If you are not a Christian, then it means you're, you're not living for the honor of Christ. The question that is helpful to ask is, whose respect am I living for? Who, if, if I could think of one person who it would just be absolutely amazing if this person respected me. And you're living for that, trying to impress that group of people or that individual Whoever that is, that is your false God. And so it's helpful to think about who is it that we strive to please. I would encourage you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, to consider the son who gave up the honor and respectful place of being at the right hand of the father so that he may come down and offer salvation to those who are 
enemies of him. He was degraded on a cross. He gave up his respectful place so that we could be brought near to the Father. And so not only does the cross enable us to lay down the respect our flesh desires from others, but it also equips us to have courage to sacrifice riches. And we see this again with Joseph. So look in verse 44. So Joseph, he's now asking for the body of Jesus. So he goes to Pilate, and then we read that Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, that Jesus had already died. And so what does he do? He, he calls the centurion, who had likely witnessed many crucifixions before. So he knows when a guy is dead or when a guy is still alive on the cross. And so Pilate calls in the centurion and says, is he really dead? Tell me. And the centurion says, yeah, he's, he's really dead. And so therefore, Pilate says, okay, Joseph, you can, you can have the body of this king of the Jews, which is more significant than we realize just on the surface there. Because when someone was crucified by Roman authorities, the body on the cross, when that person died, was considered Roman property. And so that's why Joseph is going to Pilate to say, hey, can I have his body? We've got these Jewish laws. He needs to be, he needs to be buried the same day. And tomorrow's the Sabbath, so we, we only have a short amount of time to be able to do this. So he goes to Pilate and asks, can I have the body? Because it was considered Roman property. And it was uncommon for the authorities to give up bodies that quickly because what they would like to do is leave them on display for a few days. Reason being is because it would encourage people who were potentially thinking about going contrary to the Roman authorities. Maybe I shouldn't. This guy went against Rome and I've seen him for the last few days hung on the cross there. Maybe I don't want to. Those of you who have seen Pirates of the Caribbean, the first movie when Captain Jack Sparrow is pulling into Port, Port Royal with his small sinking ship, he goes past a few pirates who are hung off to the side and it's their skeletons. And there's a sign right next to the skeletons that says, pirates, ye be warned. Essentially saying, we're going to leave these bodies up. So if you are a sailor or if you are a pirate considering breaking the law in these waters, this could happen to you. In the same way, it wasn't uncommon for Roman authorities to leave the bodies of crucified people up so that it would encourage those who pass by to bow the knee to Rome. And so Joseph asked for this body because typically what would happen after those few days is they had a common grave for those who were crucified. And so they would discard the body into a common grave. So it may have even been a mass burial site, which potentially could have been why it was known as the place of the skull. So there may have been skulls from previous, previously crucified individuals. However, Joseph is given the body, and rather than allow him to hang there, Joseph takes care of it. He spares no expense. Look at verse 46. We can see what he does here to ensure that Christ's body is well taken care of. Verse 46, Joseph bought a linen shroud, which these linen shrouds are expensive. Remember Mark 14, the unnamed man was, was caught when they came into the Garden of Gethsemane and they went to arrest Jesus. And an unnamed man was caught by the authorities, but he flees, leaving only his linen cloth. 
and that tells us that he was likely from a family of wealth. It was the first recorded streaker, is what we said. <laughs> He's wearing his linen cloth, maybe a linen robe. And now that man, it's fascinating to think about that man who was caught and fled with his life, is now the antithesis of Jesus who did not flee. And it cost him his life. And now he is wrapped in a linen shroud purchased by Joseph of Arimathea. And as it continues on, it says that he's laid in a tomb, signifying a wealthy burial. Joseph gave up his own tomb. This is Joseph's tomb. No one had been laid in it, according to John 19. And Jesus is laid there, or fulfilling Isaiah 53, 9, that he, the Messiah, would be laid in a rich man's tomb. And then John, his account of this, as we've referenced several times, points out that Joseph was not acting alone, that Nicodemus came with him, and they together brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. This is, this is significant, because a typical burial, typical Jewish burial, would have anywhere from less than a pound to on the high end, five pounds of spices. And so for them to bring 75 pounds of spices, commentators point out that that's enough spices to do over 100 burials. It's enough spices to do the burial of a king. And that's how they view Jesus. They bring in nearly 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. In today's market, Commentators point out that that would be roughly anywhere between $150,000 and $200,000 worth of spices. They bring in myrrh, which was there at Jesus' birth. You've seen Matthew 2, when Jesus is born, bring myrrh to him, and now in Jesus' death, myrrh is brought to him. So what we see, with no expense being spared, is that Joseph of Arimathea, who was previously a secret disciple has now publicly gone to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, sacrificing, potentially sacrificing any respect he may have received from the Sanhedrin. That his, his days on the Sanhedrin may be done because he's gone to Pilate and asked Pilate for the body. But he doesn't just stop there. He then pours out his riches onto Jesus. He could have just grabbed the body and tried to save face and tell the Sanhedrin, hey, you know what, I'm just, I'm just getting it down to, to make sure that we don't profane the Sabbath. I, took him down and we dug a hole and he's taken care of. But he doesn't stop there. He buys an expensive linen shroud. He brings 150 to $200,000 worth of spices and he lays him in a beautiful tomb in that day. Tomb burial was not the norm, not the normal practice. He needed a lot of wealth to be buried in a tomb. So he honors him with his wealth. And for, this, for those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus, it's not just another way we can worship God is by honoring him with our money. <laughs> this is, I was thinking about it, this is the first time, I think in the year and a half or so that we've been having public services, that I have mentioned money from the pulpit because it is just an awkward topic. <laughs> so the text goes here, we're going to talk about it, but we see with Joseph of Arimathea, he's utilizing what the Lord has given him as a means of worship. Money is not a bad thing. It's often said that money is the root of all evil. That's not true. 
The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Matthew 6 tells us that for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We see in Joseph's actions that yes, he has a lot of money, but he is using it for the sake of honoring his king. And, and look, just as a caveat, God doesn't need your money. This church, at the end of the day, we've got expenses to pay, but this church doesn't even need your money. We can, we can go somewhere and we can meet outside and we can do things even more simply than what we do then. The Lord builds his church. The money that God has given you to utilize for his name is him inviting you to worship him in just another arena. It's a joyful thing. For those who hear this and maybe are anxious about finances, be reminded that your loving Father knows all of your needs. Jesus says, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds in the air. God provides for all of them. Are you not much more valuable than them? God knows your needs. And he only has good for you. And church, we, when it comes to the members here at Citizens Church, this is why it's important for us to look at our budget when we have members meetings. At least once, or excuse me, at least twice each year, we look at the budget. And that can feel just businessy and it can feel just kind of like a rote thing. But this is a good thing for us to do because we want to be wise stewards of what God has given us. We don't just want to hoard money, but we also don't want to spend frivolously. We want to use it for the sake of building up the kingdom and raising up disciples. Biblical wisdom when it comes to this area does not always look like worldly wisdom. So we have to submit even to the scriptures when it comes to how do we handle our finances. We see Joseph of Arimathea valuing Christ above his riches. And after resolving to sacrifice um, his, the respect that he may receive from others, his reputation, after resolving to sacrifice his wealth for the sake of honoring his king, Joseph now displays the courage to sacrifice his time. Look with me the second half of verse 46. We read, taking him down, Joseph taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where he was laid. So Joseph and Nicodemus are handling the burial process. This isn't a short 10 minute process. This requires time. And Joseph and Nicodemus take him down. They wrap him in that shroud. They carry him to the tomb. They lay him in it. Then they roll a massive stone in front of it, concluding the burial process. Jesus is officially dead. The centurion confirmed it. Joseph and Nicodemus prepared the body. And the women, as we saw in verse 47, they watched it happen. They said, yep. The women were there for the crucifixion. They were there for his death. They were there for his burial. And Lord willing, next week, we will see that they were there for his resurrection. But the burial of Jesus required time and it required energy. Joseph, who was previously a secret disciple, was willing to publicly ask for the body, was willing to publicly take care of the body at great expense. And now he's willing to put in his time 
He's not just funding it. He's willing to put in his time and effort to make sure that Christ is honored. Brothers and sisters, we serve our King. Not because it merits us salvation, not because it gives us more salvation, but because Christ commanded it and Christ modeled it. In John 13, we see him. I'll just read this. You call me teacher. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. You call me teacher and Lord. He says, and you are right. For so I am. If I, then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. He says, you call me Lord and teacher. This is a, a title of honor. And if I'm willing to wash your feet, if I'm willing to get low and wash the dirtiest parts of you as your Lord and teacher, then you too should be willing to lower yourself for the sake of others. In agrarian societies, to wash feet, that was an extremely humiliating task. It was a humbling task because they had sandals. And an agrarian society meant that camels and all kinds of animals did not go off to the bathroom They took care of things right as they were walking down the road. And as you're walking down the road, oftentimes your feet step into things. And so to wash someone's feet is a much more gross process than what it would be even today. So it's a lowering of himself. He's giving them an example, not not saying that washing feet is, uh, is an ordinance that we must do. It's a perfectly humble thing to do, and it's a nice way to express your humility towards somebody. However, what Jesus is getting at is, I, your Lord and teacher, am willing to lower myself and serve you. Therefore, you, my followers, should be willing to lower yourselves and serve the body of Christ. And so Jesus is giving us an example. And there's so many needs around us. I think, I think if we stopped and looked around, we would recognize so many needs, even just within this church, but there's so many needs in our community so that it can feel overwhelming. We're okay. Rob, I, I agree, I need to serve, but like where in the world would I, do I even start? Let Galatians 6 be at least some direction where we read as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. So there's a principle. We should do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so we have a special priority toward one another. It's one of the benefits of being a member at a church. We make a promise to each other that we will take care of one another and we will be here through one, with, for one another. But we also can't just stop with us. Otherwise, we're just a holy huddle. There are needs around us. We need to be missionally engaged with our neighbors, with our people who we are going to work next to, people that we run into at the store, people we run into at a restaurant. We need to try to engage people with the gospel in the most effective way in ways that we know how. But that's going to look different with various different life stages. If you're younger and don't have a family, then you are in a unique season where you have a lot of free time potentially because you don't have a spouse, you don't have kids taking up a lot of your time. And so don't waste this season of life. Use this season of life well. Maybe you or in a family where you have less free time. Be encouraged that when it comes to your schedule, 
even in the way that you arrange your schedule, you are communicating to your family what is most important. If you have less free time because of your family, it doesn't mean that you need to ignore your family. You need to take care of your family. You need to spend time with your family. However, the way, be mindful of your schedule because the way that you set up your schedule communicates to children what's important to mommy and daddy. And so be mindful of it. Use your schedule well. And maybe you're in the room, you're more seasoned. You have more wisdom to dish out to a predominantly young congregation. We need you. And I will just let the words of Titus 2 speak here, where we read, Older men, you are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So older men, you have a responsibility to be those things and to help younger men in the room also be those things. Now older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. And here's why, that the word of God may not be reviled. When older men and older women are training up other men and women within the church, in the way that we see here in Titus 2, it protects the word of God from being reviled. We must serve one another. And it's going to look different in different life stages. We need to be mindful of the ways in which we do that. Maybe when you're at work, one of the ways that you can do that is just by being one of those people who are quick to lend a hand, quick to help out. Even small things like that over time speak volumes to people who may be far from Christ. But here's what I want to make sure we drive home. Is that as we see in this passage, that we are called to live a courageous and a sacrificial life. It's not possible on your own strength. It's not possible in our own. It's only possible through the one who courageously sacrificed not only his respect, his riches, and his time, but also his whole life so that we may be restored to God. If you feel like you're falling short in the areas of courageous sacrifice, don't fix your eyes on you. Yes, we can grow in our sanctification in these areas, but if, it, if you keep your eyes on you, it's just going to feel impossible. Fix your eyes on the one who has done this in your place so that we may be equipped to do those things. That's the good news of the gospel, is that we are called to these things. And we should pursue these things. However, Christ has fulfilled all of them for us. And now we pursue those things, not out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of love for the one who has accomplished them on our behalf. Do me a favor, turn to John chapter 19. Again, in the Blue Bibles, that's going to be page 906. See Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Going to John 19, and we're starting in verse 41. When I say starting, I mean that's where we're going to be looking. We're not going to go past 41. So John 19, verse 41. Here's what we see. Now in the place where he, Jesus, was crucified, 
there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid again we come back to that garden theme where in genesis we see adam the first adam him and eve in the garden and they fail they give into temptation and sin casting all of humanity into sin a fallen state and now we see the second adam where we saw him tempted in a garden the garden of gethsemane and he's faithful he does not give in to temptation and now we see the second adam again in a garden where the first adam death was birthed we see now in the second adam in a garden death being put to death being laid in a tomb and it's in this new tomb it's in this garden where the new Adam, who is laid in a new tomb, is put there so that all who put their faith in him may have new life. The new Adam is placed in a new tomb so that we may have new life. Joseph of Arimathea was at a crossroads, and he had a decision to make. Am I going to continue to be a secret disciple? Am I going to continue to try to follow Jesus from a distance? Or am I going to go public with my faith? It may cost me respect. It may cost me my wealth. It may cost me my time. Am I willing to do that? And we see his response to the cross is that, yes, I am willing to do that. Alistair Bag points out, he says, either your secrecy will destroy your discipleship or your discipleship will destroy your secrecy. Either your secrecy will destroy your discipleship or your discipleship will destroy your secrecy. We're getting ready to sing a song, Jesus, Thank You. And it's got a great line in it that we'll sing a few times that says, lover of my soul, I want to live for you. Let that be something that we don't just sing, but let that be something that we live out each day. The reason we live for Christ is not to attain salvation, but it's because he has purchased it on our behalf. He has loved us and saved us. We have fallen short in countless ways. We can name many of them. But we need to be reminded that in Christ, all of those ways are fulfilled. And if we are in Him, we are accepted by God. So as we go from here, as we get ready to sing these songs, let's courageously live for Christ, even if that costs us riches, even if that costs us respect, even if that costs us time, because the cross ultimately leads the people of God to courageous and sacrificial living because God himself has come in Christ and has courageously sacrificed himself on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news. The good news of Jesus' death. So we see very clearly he was dead. The centurion confirmed it. Joseph and Nicodemus did the burial and the women witnessed it. Jesus, thank you for being willing to courageously sacrifice yourself so that we may have life. Your death is our life. Thank you. We pray that we would live in a way that reflects courageous sacrifice in the way that you did for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.